We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. Last Sunday we saw some great insight into the spiritual realm from some pretty obscure scriptures that a lot of people weren't really familiar with. Uh, and a heart check evoked from anyone actively fence-sitting when it comes to their spiritual walk. If you think that's something that might interest you uh, and you weren't here last week, I'd urge you to get the message or download it from the website. Today we're going to see Jesus refusing to do parlor tricks for the people uh, because some of them demanded those tricks in order to believe. But he does provide illustrations to missed spiritual opportunities in several ways. And we see the religious leaders as a personification, as an object lesson to this. So we're going to start in verse 29. It says, And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. An evil generation seeks after signs, and none will be provided. Jesus has also said before, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The signs were for a reason, but it wasn't so that it wasn't tied to salvation. And people were starting to do that linking there. They just wanted to be to be uh, to be uh, amused. You know, they wanted to be entertained, so to speak. But I wonder if it's any different today. You see the signs and wonders movement really picking up speed among Christianity. God's word is not enough. People need an emotional experience. They need to feel something. They want that emotional experience in addition to God's word. Some go as far as to say that you can't be saved unless you exhibit these signs or unless you believe in these signs. Now, my wife unwittingly went to a church a few years ago, and it was a different church, and we have open minds, and they were doing some interesting things there, uh, like, like the slain in the spirit kind of thing and then laughing in the spirit but I think the line got drawn when people started flatulating in the spirit. Last time I checked Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, breaking wind in the spirit was not a spiritual gift. <laughs> Don't start doing that here. I'll show you the door. <laughs> but Paul says that exhibiting the spiritual gifts are to be done decently, in order, and according to scripture. Otherwise, he says, won't people from the outside come in and say, we're out of our minds, right? So why wouldn't God be obligated to do signs and wonders? Well, Hebrews 1 tells us that he speaks to us through his son in these last days. Isn't that enough? Why do people still want to be entertained if God's word is here for us? And this is what he's left for us. Do you realize what a blessing we have to, have to go into any bookstore and have 66 books over a span of well over 2,500 years, 40 authors, different languages, all put together and translated into English for you. The early church didn't have that. They would circulate letters. They would have the scrolls from the Old Testament. This is a blessing to us, and we take it for granted. In contrast, I think about uh, my friend Tayo from Nigeria. And, you know, we were having a discussion, and I said, churches in America today, it's like 45 minutes. That's got to be the cutoff, because everybody's got something to do, and you start losing people. He said, in Nigeria, it's not uncommon for a church service to go for two hours, right? In China... The Chinese, the underground church, they walk a half a day through the, the jungle and rough terrain to get to a church. And then they're blessed by the service and it takes them half a day to walk back. So church is an all day thing. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. 
Paul says this, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. People, you know, you see back in the, let's see, 70s, they had all these horror movies. It was the big thing. It was always another horror movie. And Satan would come at you all grotesque looking with horns and, you know, a, a forked tail and really, you know, ugly. But the funny thing is, the Bible says that Satan doesn't come to us like that. Satan comes to us and he disguises himself as an angel of light. This way he can hook us. If he came to us and he scared us, none of us would sin, right? So he tries to hook us in with bait. He tries to come in as an angel of light. And his ministers are also acting in that capacity. It looks good, but it's not. Satan is a deceiver. And today's signs are very hard to verify. That's the truth. Um, there's another scripture I want to turn to is Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 2. One particular verse here, verse 9. It says that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Satan is a counterfeit, and whatever God does, he tries to mimic that. And this is talking about the lawless one, the Antichrist, who's going to be empowered by Satan. And with the power of Satan, he's going to do these really neat signs and lying wonders and get people to believe that it's from you know, God. And this is how it's going to start hooking people. So they start believing the lie. But there's some bizarre things go on in the name of signs. If you ever looked on, uh, if you ever Googled apparitions and looked at some of the so-called manifestations of God or Jesus or the saints, it's really bizarre. Bleeding statues, weeping paintings, some chaotic behavior. It's very important to do this. Very often with these apparitions, there's a message, okay? And you've got to check the message after it's done and see if it's counter-scriptural. If it's counter-scriptural, it can only fall into three camps. One, purely emotional. Two, fraud. Or three, the worst one, satanic. If you wouldn't mind putting up the... Uh, I have one thing that I just wanted to show you from... I got off the Internet. That's a... For those of you who are listening, that's a, a statue, and there's supposedly alleged blood coming out of the eyes. It's very grotesque. I struggled with whether I wanted to show this or not, but I thought it would really help to prove the point. That's not from God. Okay, you can, you can take it off. God never worked through an icon or a statue or something bizarre to get his people a message. Uh, also, if you look at, again, some of these messages, 1917, Our Lady of Fatima, Portugal, Read, listen to the message. It's totally counter-scriptural. God doesn't confuse himself. He doesn't contradict himself. If he says something in his word, he's not going to come by later and, and, and contradict his word. It doesn't happen. Um, there was one actually kind of humorous example where it talked about in November 23, 2004, somebody found an apparition, they thought, in a grilled cheese sandwich. They looked down, I'm not kidding, and on the bread they thought they saw an image of, of somebody important. They actually bagged the grilled cheese sandwich and sold it on eBay for $28,000. Why is it that people won't look for God in this book, but they'll look for him in a grilled cheese sandwich? 
I got news for you. If you see my face in a grilled cheese sandwich, just eat it. <laughs> so it's funny, but it's sad. It's sad because people have such a desire for, for the supernatural, but they're looking in the wrong places. And it's our job as Christians to show them the truth through God's word. So Jesus performed many signs for his specific purposes, but he wasn't going to be obligated for a show. Uh, last week I spoke about Herod, and I actually juxtaposed Jesus' name and John the Baptist. But what happened with Herod was he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist, the Bible says, but he eventually ordered his execution anyway. He was a double-minded man. Now, when Jesus came to be crucified, uh, Pilate, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. So he realized that uh, Jesus was from Herod's district, so he sent Jesus back to Herod to be examined and hopefully get him off his hands. And Herod examined Jesus, and he wanted, he was dying to see Jesus do a sign. Jesus wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to do any tricks for Herod. And Herod was very disappointed and sent uh, Jesus back to Pilate. You know the, re the rest of the story. But Jesus said here, with this wicked and adulterous generation, the only sign left is the sign of Jonah. Well, what is a few things about Jonah? One, Jonah was assigned to the pagan Ninevites. If you remember that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, that evil empire that was to uh, Israel's northeast. These people were known for their brutality. You can look up in the historical records. The Ninevites would skin people alive when they, when they would come and conquer. They would amputate. They would just come summarily and pick out a few people out of the crowd after they conquered them and off with his hand, off with his foot, pull his tongue out. They were sick people. They would kill people and have a pile of skulls for, the, for fear factor to make sure nobody would rebel against them. Jo Jonah really had a good reason to hate these people. He's like, you want me to go to them? No way, I hate those people. He didn't want to go, but he did anyway, and he was obedient. But the same way that Jonah brought these uh, pagan Ninevites to faith, Jesus also brings a lot of the pagans, a lot of the Gentiles into the fold. But two, the biggest importance of the sign of Jonah is the resurrection. Jonah was taken into the depths of the sea by a great fish. And by all accounts, he should have been dead. It was certainly a miracle. Incidentally, though, there was a biologist who came to faith. And I remember hearing his testimony. He became a believer, and he actually studied the, the story of Jonah. And he... He reasoned with the type of sea creatures that were back then and now are extinct, and even some of our whales. And he found out it's very easy for a man to survive three days in the, uh, in, the, in the body of one of these sea creatures. Number one, a lot of them breathe air. They come up to the surface and they breathe air. So they often have caverns of air in their body. And the second thing is a lot of them eat plankton or krill, and their digestive juices are very weak. So they wouldn't be able to digest the man. So... <laughs> the fish probably went to the shore and had a bad case, case of agita and spit Jonah up on the shore. <laughs> so it, it definitely, look, it could have been a miracle, but it could have happened by natural means. But Jonah's experience in the fish parallels a type of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's what the sign of Jonah is. So the first spiritual opportunity that the people missed was the resurrection, the sign of Jonah. Because after the resurrection, Jesus' body wasn't found. He appeared to many. And uh, people still didn't believe. Verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. 
The Queen of the South is well known as the Queen Sheba. If you can find this, in, if you're taking notes, in 1 Kings 10, 1 through 9. She was a pagan queen from Sheba. Now, today we understand Sheba as the Arabian Peninsula. It's uh, inhabited by Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, and a lot of those uh, Arab states. But anyway, this woman came up to listen to the wisdom of Solomon because his fame spread worldwide. She was blown away by his wisdom, which was a testament to the God he served. And if you read the story, not only does she take note of his God, but she also gives praise to him. So the second spiritual opportunity that was missed in this instance was wisdom of Christ. Because as wise as Solomon was, uh, Jesus was even more wise. Verse 32, then the, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So we know that many of the Ninevites Job preached to repented and believed, but history suggests that some, if not all, of Queen Sheba's entourage had come to faith. So the point here is that if heathens, pagan peoples, could come to faith by Jonah and Solomon, who certainly weren't two great shining examples of God's people, how much more should the Jews of that time come to faith in their Messiah, the Son of God, who did much more, was much greater, and who the Old Testament scriptures pointed to? Therefore, in the judgment, the generation, Jesus' generation that rejected him, will come into far greater judgment with Sheba and the Ninevites to accuse them as witnesses. Can you imagine that? Some of the stuff in Scripture, when you start putting together, kind of blows you away. It's almost like a courtroom setting where God brings people from different eras, different clothings, different languages, to come forth as witnesses to, to accuse these people uh, who, who've rejected the faith. The amazing thing is that, again, we're going to see, we'll probably see an awesome sight of, of different people from all uh, eras of, of life. But the interesting thing is, last Sunday, uh, we talked about how if you've rebelled and rebelled and you've rejected God's word, that God will remind you if you're in that state when it comes to the judgment and you say to the Lord, what I didn't know. And then he'll rewind the tape of your relatives and neighbors and maybe teachers who have talked to you about the Lord. You have no excuse now. Here, and coupled with that, there'll be historical figures too. Talk about an open and shut case. This is a prosecutor's dream. You've got the best witnesses on earth, right? But it doesn't have to be anyone's fate. We always have to remind people that that doesn't have to be anyone's fate. Your fate could be spending eternity in heaven with, with, with God, right? Verse 33, it says, No one, Jesus says, No one when he has lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. So Jesus kind of takes a little bit of a different turn here, but you'll see how he ties everything in. Literally, a lamp is designed to give light. A lamp did no good hidden. Like I, I said a few weeks ago, uh, it was when the sun went down, it was dark. There was no street lamps. You know, we think where we, where we live in the modern era, oh, it's dark out. But it's really not because there's usually light coming from somebody's headlights driving by or a street lamp. You know, in this situation, when the lights went off, it was pitch, it was pitch black. So a lamp's job was to give light to the house. It would be counterproductive to hide it. So in a spiritual sense, it's impossible to contain the gospel or God's light that he's put into your life. It's counterproductive. Verse 34, he goes on. The lamp of the body is the eye. 
Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright, when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Now, this portion would actually appear to link again what we just went over with the unbelief and the next portion where he characterizes the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the lawyers. He just spoke of missed spiritual opportunities, and now he's talking about how we should not only contain the light of God, but to display the overflow from within. Let's break down these items. It's an interesting scripture. The light. Well, what could the light be? The light of God's word. Psalm 119.105 says, your, your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Spiritual truth. Jesus Christ, we know, was the light of the world. So they're synonymous. The eye, most people know the eye is a receptor organ. But did you know that the eye, in a small way, is a reflector organ too? When the light comes in, it, um, it hits the back of the, the inside of the eyeball where the film is, the retina, which has rods and cones. And when the light comes in, it energizes these things, and actually some of it gets reflected back and forth into the eyeball. So in, in a physical sense, it's a, mostly a receptor, but also a reflector. Now, in this sense, it appears to be the conduit to spiritual truth or our understanding or receptivity to God's light. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. It's an indicator of what type of person you are spiritually based on that receptivity. Verse 35, he says, therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. So what type of spirituality do you have? Is your eye or receptivity for God's truth or for any old spirituality. Some think they have light, but Jesus says here, don't let your light be darkness. Kind of when he says that, that sounds like an oxymoron. How could your light be darkness? It doesn't make any sense. But there's a lot of spirituality in this country, but there's not a whole lot of light. It's funny how people think from other countries, oh, they're a Christian nation, but we export pornography, and we have partial birth abortion, and we do so many awful things. Even in the church, our history isn't very good. So there's a lot of spirituality, but not a whole lot of light. It's kind of like spiritual relativism. People choose, they shop, just like there's, you go to the store and you look for a loaf of bread and there's like a hundred different, you know, my wife was telling me in the, in the, when she would go in to do the prison ministry with the women, women, the women in the prison usually would make a life of it because they would get out and it was hard for them to live. One of the things they had trouble with was choosing at the store. They would go to the supermarket and there would be 50 different loaves of bread because in the prison they get their bread, they get their drinks. It's all set for them. Their life is pretty much taken care of. When they get out, there's too many choices. And that's the way it is with this country. There's so many choices. And it's the same way with spirituality. It's like a smorgasbord. You know, you have all your spiritualities. And you say, well, this is my lifestyle. So I'm going to pick a spirituality that fits my lifestyle. I'll take that off the shelf. But that's not necessarily what God wants you to do. I remember um, a fellow officer a few days ago spoke of, um, he was talking to me, they're uh, a mixed faith couple, and he told me of a religious ceremony, and he, he wanted to know what I thought of his wife's insistence that their child have additional biblical names. My first thought was, I don't want to get in the middle of a spousal dispute. I don't want his wife calling me and yelling at me because I took his side. <laughs> 
But I said, basically, names don't have any real significance. It's on the inside. It's what's on the inside that counts, not what your title is. And Jesus speaks about that in this illustration and the subsequent illustrations of the religious leaders, as we're going to see. Verse 37. So he goes now to the religious leaders. He says, and he, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, by this time, everybody knew who Jesus was, what he was all about. So why was he invited to a religious leader's house? Well, no doubt everyone knew by this time the many incidents and the amount of grace he showed to the outcasts of society, which kind of went against the grain. It was at odds with the religious leaders. No doubt every, everybody knew word traveled about the love and grace shown to the adulterous woman who came to Simon the Pharisee's house to see Jesus. Again, being at odds with the religious system, no doubt all knew of the unorthodoxy to which Jesus was accustomed, which was also at odds. They were all about orthodoxy. So I can only speculate that they, he was invited for nefarious reasons, not for something good. But the Pharisees were the largest group of the religious leaders. They were a legalistic sect. With the appearance of religiosity, excuse me, they would make a show of their behavior. They would make a show of their attention for religious details, ceremonies. And one of them was hand washing. Now, this wasn't to suggest that Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner or had barbaric table manners. That's not what this is indicating. The hand washing of the Pharisees was a ritualistic, OCD-type behavior in the name of religion. Seriously, they would wash their hands. They, before they ate, they would take water and they would wash their hands to get anything defiled off their hands. If they, by accident, touched something defiled or they went to swat a gnat and the blood came out because they couldn't touch blood. So they would wash their hands and, and, you know, let the water run off. Then they would take the water again and wash their hands again because... The water that went on the first time could have got defiled. So now they have defiled water instead of the defiled thing on their hands. So they'd wash their hands again to get the defiled water off. And they would keep doing this. And if you, if you look at it, it's like, that's pretty bizarre. But personally, I think a good dose of Prozac would have helped these guys. You know? But this is a personification of rote, ritualistic, repetitive, mindless religion. I've got to tell you, as we go through this section... Some things may come to light in your mind. You're going to see religiosity. Okay? You're going to see religiosity at its worst. Right? Now, understand the difference between religion or religiosity versus denominationalism. The issue is not with what denomination you are. Calvary is not the end-all, be-all. But it has to do with religiosity creeping into any denomination, including maybe some of the Calvaries. It's just a mindless go through the motions. It's not, it's not about God anymore. It's about a culture of Christianity, right? Verse 39, he says, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Ouch. <laughs> Talk about jaw-dropping dinner conversation. Pass the Alka-Seltzer, right? But Jesus was never reticent to expose hypocrisy or tell the truth instead of making peace at any cost. Jesus said it is good to be persecuted for doing the Lord's will, but beware when men speak well of you. Everything that we think is right here, God thinks that the best thing is actually the reverse. I'm a self-made man. I'm proud of myself. You know, I'm, I did it all my way. And God's like, you're a fool. You're going to be humbled. Because the true humble people that lean on him are the ones that he exalts. It's always reversed in the kingdom of what our flesh thinks. But, uh, you know, I don't think Channel 7 News is going to come here anytime soon to praise us for speaking about uh, the truth about hell and salvation through Jesus Christ. If anything, they would malign us for not being politically correct. And, you know, some in ecclesiastic authority have looked the other way and been silent because what they should have said wasn't said because it was, wasn't popular. I refuse to do that. And I've also lost some friends and I've had some heartaches because of that. You know, Jude said, contend for the faith. Peter said, defend the faith. Paul said, correct, rebuke, exhort. This is what the Bible says. People think we're just supposed to be, you know, I don't know what they think, but it's not certainly what's not biblical to just agree with everybody all the time, no matter what they say. In verse 39 through 40, see, these Pharisees fooled people into thinking that the more pomp and circumstance, the more ceremony would give themselves an appearance of holiness. Do we have that pharisaical religion today? Do we have the spirit of the Pharisees present in a lot of religion today? Well, you betcha. It still amazes me how many people are trapped in a religious system that gives the appearance of holiness, but organizations are filled with vice and wickedness. And it's across the board. It's not, it's not any particular denomination. It's, it's across the board. It's, it's, it's very across the board. I mean, you look at the, <laughs> the news, how many priests have fallen and gotten arrested for pedophilia, how many pastors have built their church and been arrested for embezzlement or tax evasion or something. Uh, the one thing I saw about the rabbi on court TV who killed his wife, I mean, it's just all over the place. So it's, it's across the board. But it just amazes me, too, how people are man-pleasers. You know, they're impressed by people in high positions, titles, and fancy apparel. Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And it's because we, we deal with people every day. So we tend to look at people as they're larger than life. And we more would prefer to please people and make peace with people. And we kind of put God on the back burner. Because you know what, eventually we'll see him maybe 20, 30 years when we die. But right now he's really not in the forefront. We have to deal with people because they're in the forefront. A very interesting book. If you're impressed by a man, what do you do when, he char when he's charged with a crime? It's devastating. People's whole world falls apart. I was watching this show on, okay, Lifetime for Women. Now, <laughs> what? I guess everybody knows Lifetime for Women. Usually the man's the bad guy. Just for the record, I don't watch Lifetime for Women. I was walking downstairs and my wife was watching it, okay? But it was a really good story. It was, about, it was a true story about a pastor who was married. He started having an affair with his secretary, and eventually he killed his wife. He staged a, an auto accident and murdered his wife so he could be with the secretary, right? And he was a man of high reputation in the community. And this one cop was on to him, but nobody would believe him. And his superiors were telling him, back off, back off. He's well-respected in the community. 
Well, eventually, he did enough research, he got the goods on this guy. They bring him in, they arrest him, they bring him to trial. Well, the whole church filled, this is a true story, the whole church filled the courtroom. And they were being disruptive and they were making noise because they refused to believe that this guy could have done it, although they had overwhelming evidence against him. What a horrible, horrible representation of Christianity. That's like cultish, you know? No man should be followed like that. We're only men. We make mistakes. We fall into sin. It's, it's got, your focus has to be God. You've got to pick yourself up and keep your eyes on the Lord and stop looking at men. Okay, so verse 41 uh, he says, actually going back to 36, he says, If your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So, and then going back to 41, he says, But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Now, the alternate translation is, But rather give alms of what's inside. So God wants to know, God wants to see what the, what's on the inside. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what proceeds from within that defiles him, because that's an attitude of the heart. Give alms of what is inside. This could be a little controversial, but, uh, you know, Mel Gibson did that movie, The Passion of the Christ. So millions of people went to see it, and he made $400 million on the movie. Well, Mel Gibson's a very religious man. A few weeks ago, he was caught drunk. He was caught drunk and driving. He was caught drunk and driving and saying awful things about Jewish people. And he was trying to pick up the female cop. He was a religious man. But, you know, there was stuff that was coming out of him that was not good. So what does that tell you? He wasn't giving alms of what's inside. Now, look, I don't need a bunch of hate mail. I don't, I don't judge Mel Gibson. I'm not his judge. But I'm just giving you an example. I'm not saying he's not saved. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But it just goes to show you a perfect example of how many people practically worship the man because he did a great film about Jesus Christ. But, but look at where his heart was. You know, it's funny. Blame it on the alcohol. Alcohol is a funny thing. Before I was a Christian, I, I was there. You know, I used to drink and get drunk and do stupid things. But, you know, in all of us, there's a little voice that says, when you're going to say something bad or mean or stupid, don't say it, don't say it, you know. But as you drink, the more you drink, that voice goes, don't say it. And you don't hear the voice anymore, and you just say it, you know? There's, there's, there's a part of your, your spirit that rejects false thoughts, that rejects evil thoughts, you know? And, but when you drink, you know, it, that voice just disappears, and you just, whatever's inside just comes out. So, I don't know. So, divert, you know, Jesus doesn't... God doesn't want religion. Jesus rails against religion. That's what we see happening here. We have to give God of our internal heart, not window dressing. Uh, religion can be a diversion. It's a way of saying that you gave God something to put him off the trail of what he really wants from you, which is your heart. You're putting God off with religion because you want to do your own thing but have an appearance. You want both worlds, and it doesn't work that way. You know, with religion... Uh, it's, it's all about a relationship with God. That's the whole thing. If you take nothing away today, it's about having a relationship with your creator. And um, religion doesn't do that. I could think about an example with my wife, all right? And I've used this before, but it's a good example. If uh, I say to my wife, I have this great thing for our relationship. Every Friday, I'm going to buy you fresh-cut flowers, and you're going to love them. And by the time Thursday rolls around and the old ones are dying, Friday you're going to get new fresh-cut flowers. 
And my wife says to me, yeah, I understand, but the dishes are piling up in the sink and the garbage is overflowing. We need repairs on the house and your son's being a maniac. I need some time by myself. And I say, Heather, I know exactly what you need. Every Friday, I'm going to buy you fresh cut flowers. She scratches her head and looks at me and says, didn't you just hear what I said? The house is in disrepair. Your son is disobedient. The garbage is overflowing and the dishes are in the sink. But I got the answer. Fresh cut flowers. And you're going to say, you're an idiot, Joe. You're going to be in marriage counseling. But the truth is, we do the same thing with God. It's funny, but it's not funny. God, I'm going to give you church attendance. Huh? You like that? I'm going to say a prayer that I memorized today. That's pretty good, too, for me, right? I'm going to give, do a good deed and walk an old lady across the street. Yeah, I'm really stellar now in your eyes, aren't I, Lord? There's no relationship there. It's rote. It's repetitive. It's mindless. And that's just the way it is. In verse 42, these guys were tithing. They would tithe their mint and rue, and in other scriptures says cumin. Their little garden herbs or garden spices, they would be so meticulous in giving God that 10% that it says in the law that they would take the little seeds and, and say, oh, they would, you know, tithe it to the Lord. It was like a way of overcompensation. Uh, ridiculous about tithe to the point of extremity. Uh, but they refused to give of God what really mattered, their hearts. That's what he really wanted. Because that's much more difficult to do. And he speaks about, he passed by justice and the love of God. Justice and the love of God. Well, we know what the love of God is. What's justice? When you go to court, don't you want justice? Justice is the love of your fellow human beings. You know, you have to love God, but you also have to have justice. Scripture tells us that it's impossible to love God and at the same time hate people. It just doesn't work. It's kind of tough to be a Christian and be antisocial. I mean, there's a difference between a little, being a little timid and a little shy and saying, I've heard some people say, I just hate people. Okay, well, maybe we can work with that. At least you're being honest. This is a start. But it's kind of difficult to hate people and be a Christian. God's word is very clear about that. In verse 43, it says, Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. This is a practice of celebrity status. They enjoyed the perks and the attention that was bestowed upon them. Is it any different today? Is there a lot of humility in the ecclesiastical authority? Do you see it a lot? You know, if you look at Christian TV, you would think these guys were superstars, right? Uh, where's the humility? I wonder if sometimes it's an aberration uh, to pastor in the age of TV, Internet, and the megachurch. It probably was a lot easier to stay humble. If you look at Pastor Jamesburg or Cranberry, on every few blocks there would be a little church, only about 50 seats, and there would be a local pastor to that community, right? probably was a lot easier to stay humble back then. But these guys were tempted. They had big egos. This was the spirit of the Pharisees. What do you think of a shepherd that's always trying to get his mug in the paper or always trying to posture for the camera? All I can say is this. If your shepherd is distracted, it's a lot easier for the wolf to steal the sheep. Think about that. If your shepherd's distracted, a lot easier for the wolf to steal the sheep. Uh, two Wednesdays ago, we had the uh, Stan Telchin's testimony. At the, uh, many of you had come out at the... Uh, Pierre's, and there was a reporter there, and I was trying to avoid this woman like the plague. <laughs> Every time she'd come over to me, I'd say, hey, have you met so-and-so? And I'd disappear. I'm afraid of the media because they misquote you, and they're not very friendly to what they're doing. I, I don't want to be you know, involved in that. The only way I would feel comfortable doing that is if I really felt that 
God gave me a message that I wanted everyone to get, and they would print it without editing it. Otherwise, I don't want to be bothered with the media, right? Same thing with the police. They do that. They misquote everything that you do, and we're ordered from up above not to talk to the media. We have a special media person who deals with them. Verse 44, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. This is the appearance, or appears to be a picture of danger. This is a picture of an unsuspecting person walking over an unmarked grave, not knowing what's in it. You know, dead bodies then weren't sanitized. They didn't drain the blood out and wash them and put all the embalming fluid and stuff in there. Um, They weren't sanitized and sealed and buried as they are today. They were a host of disease, and they also made you ceremonial unclean if you touched them, even by accident. Jesus likens these people, these religious leaders, to unmarked graves and people walking over them uh, in unsuspecting danger. It's like there's death in their doctrine, you know, trying to tell people, don't. Jesus said about the religious leaders, do what they say because they knew the law, but don't do what they do because they're hypocrites, right? Remember, let's, let me bring your, your attention back to the setting here. This is a dinner conversation. Funny, huh? Verse 45, he says, Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, you lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. I guess he didn't want them to feel left out, you know. So, (laughs) 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of the prophets which were shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. So here... Um, the scribes, the lawyers, and the teachers were synonymous. They copied the law, they became experts in the law, they were teachers of the law, and they also settled legal disputes. Um, And also, they would also complicate the simple nature of God's law. God made the law simple so people could understand, and he didn't make it so difficult that people who weren't of a high intelligence couldn't figure it out and couldn't come and worship God. But these guys made it difficult, and they spoke legalese too. Um, This gives rise to reliance on the lawyers. The legal burdens became so high that nobody could hurdle them. It forced people to depend on the religious system for their salvation. 46. You know, he also says, or I looked up the word religion in the dictionary, and it says a system or a way of life. If you follow any religious system long enough, they all have a catechism. Now, the word catechism is not indigenous to any particular denomination. It's basically a handbook, right? Usually starts with some rules of the church that are based on scripture, and catechisms end up growing over time. And then it becomes man-made rules in addition to God's law. They often grow and eventually supersede and many times contradict God's law. So they were more burdens of religion that God never intended. And what happens is with all these rules, traditions, and burdens, the people eventually give up. They can't follow it. And you know what? Neither can the religious leaders. That's why Jesus chastised them for being wicked and evil inside. Because even the leaders, 
the, the, the burdens grew and grew and grew that the common people gave up. And even the religious leaders, no way, could follow these burdens that they started mounting up. Uh, so Jesus calls them hypocrites. Verse 47 he speaks about um, this generation. They build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Nationalistic pride. They like to uh, adorn the, the tombs and, and uh, memorialize them and remember them and all this kind of stuff. But it was the prophets were always martyred by the religious and the, the ruling class to which these men were a part of. And the icing on the cake to this gener generation was that they martyred the Messiah to whom all the prophets had spoken about. So they were the culmination of the martyrs, or, or, the, or the ones that were martyring the, the holy men of God, right? Verse 50 through 51, he speaks about, um, you know, it says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Jewish prophetic history was a history of bloodshed. It certainly wasn't an uh, enjoyable profession to be a prophet of God. At the very least, they were beat up and maligned. Many of them were killed, murdered in awful ways. Uh, so and he, he talks about from Abel to Zechariah. Well, Abel and Cain, Abel was uh, also martyred for his righteousness. He had an, an acceptable sacrifice. Cain did not. So his brother Cain murdered Abel. And the interesting thing is that Jesus and all the Old New Testament writers often refer back to Genesis. Isn't that amazing? So when people say, especially in so-called Christianity, that Genesis was a fairy tale, then why is our Lord, who died for our sins, referring us back to fairy tales? See, you, when you go away from God's word, you get in trouble. You get into a lot of trouble. And then you try to explain something that you try to make to make the secular world happy. And then it becomes a mess. And then your own religion doesn't make any sense. So the Bible, the New Testament, often referred back to Genesis at the very least. Zechariah, he was a prophet. Second Chronicles 24 speaks about this. They murdered him in such an awful way that they murdered him in the house of God. He was mobbed. They, the mob murdered him in the temple. <laughs> right? In, you know, supposedly that's where God dwelled. And that's where they murdered this guy, prophet of God. Pretty awful uh, story. Uh, verse 52, he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in you have hindered. It reminds me of um, like a magisterium, a governing body of people that are put there to interpret scriptures. Many were killed in the dark ages for reading the Bible, for printing the Bible. And the question is why? Because it forced people, just like here, to depend on the church. In all fairness, you don't need me for your salvation either. All I do is I, you know, I study a lot and I help to digest. I help you to digest God's word and apply it for your lives. You don't need me. I'm just kind of a facilitator here. But imagine how David's psalms would change if David needed the church to go through or a governing body to interpret scripture for him to, to worship God, right? Let me go through uh, Psalm 119, just a few passages. David says this. He says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Teach me your statutes. He says, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. He says, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. For you yourself have taught me, right? There's a picture of a one-on-one -on -one relationship between a person and his God. It's, there's no, you know, it's just him and his God, right? 
Now, what if David's psalms were changed to reflect the fact that, or the possibility that he could not follow God unless he had a governing body to interpret scriptures for him? Psalm 1 would probably read like this. I can't understand your word, O Lord. Psalm 2, maybe. Somebody get me a translator. I can't read Hebrew. Psalm 3, I can't figure it out, O God. It's open to interpretation. Psalm 4, I can't finish these psalms without an editor, oy vey. So, poor David, you know. Verse 53. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say, that they might accuse him. Think that's a good response to correction? (laughs) I don't think so. What should be our appropriate response? Well, Proverbs 9, three verses here. Verse 7 says this, He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you, but rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. I remember as a newly married husband, uh, and I've shared this before, Pastor Luis, who's shared here from the pulpit, I just remember sitting in a chair and him shaking his finger at me, telling me what a crummy husband I was. But he gave me good, good you know, he cited good examples. So I, I listened to him and I respected him and, you know, it was good. I took that correction because, you know, new marriages, you think, well, we're Christians, we're going to get married, everything's going to be bliss. It doesn't work that way. You're still selfish and your spouse is still selfish and you've got to learn how to live together. But it's always cool to have somebody who can correct you and show you the way through God's word to have a better marriage. So things are much better now. You know, my wife has me doing stuff with her garden and all, so, but I still have authority over my home, okay? I have to save face in front of the men. But these religious leaders are furious. They're, 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 they've gone mad instead of taking these things to heart. They just, they just hit him right back. I mean, Jesus cited examples. You know, you never want to say, you never want to character assassinate someone. You're a jerk. You're an idiot. Or, you know, you don't listen. It's always good to cite examples. Jesus was very specific here. And, and they really couldn't argue with it. But it, it must have really hit home because they were enraged. And nobody else had the courage to rebuke these people and tell them where they went wrong. Can't tell these guys anything. Show me a person who can't take correction, and I'll show you a person who doesn't have a lot of friends. Or their friends now, they don't have any friends from years ago because they continue to recycle them, right? So wrapping it up, missed spiritual opportunities. One, many signs were given, but the people were never satisfied. No matter how many signs were given, they wanted one more. You know, the sign to end all signs, the sign of the prophet Jonah, the sign of the resurrection. Hundreds of people, you know, saw Jesus at one time, the Bible tells us. But many still didn't come to faith. Two, we saw the parable of the lighted lamp and the clear and healthy eye. Picture of opportunity to follow the Lord on the inside as well as on the outside to reflect the light of Christ. God doesn't care what you look like if your heart is wicked. God doesn't care how nice your hair looks or how big your muscles are or, you know, any of that stuff. He cares what's inside because that's what counts. Three, you know, we saw a prime example of a group of religious people that missed spiritual opportunities to grow in relationship with God. But instead, they took the low road, the facade of religiosity to look good on the outside, but remain decadent and wicked on the inside. You know, it's been recorded that Muhammad, 7th century, 
was appalled by the idolatry of the Christian church. So what did he do? He started his own religion. Imagine if Muhammad was introduced to true Christianity and won over to Christ. What a profound effect that would have had on the Middle East today. Do you think things would be different in the landscape over there right now if that was the case? I think so. Don't miss any more spiritual opportunities in your life. Ultimately, the choice is yours. I mean, we could either live a life of hypocrisy, even whitewashed by appearances of religiosity, or we can be a true worshiper of God, like the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. Let the Lord Jesus come into your life and do the cleaning himself, because none of us can do it. We can't, well, I am wicked inside, Joe, but, but how do I do it? Well, come to the Lord Jesus. He'll do it for you. It's not something that you have to do. It's something that you allow him inside, and he'll do the cleaning. He'll do the sweeping, right? And judging by world events, some of you may have to make that choice sooner than later. Let's pray.